So here's the question that I want us to wrestle with this morning. It may sound at first like a theoretical question, but I think this is actually a really practical question that at some level, every single one of us is seeking to answer every day of our lives. The question we're wrestling with this morning is, God has given us amazing capacity as human beings to initiate freedom, power, potential, ability. As it says in Psalm 8, we are only a little bit lower than the most glorious heavenly beings. We have been crowned with glory and crowned with honor. So what is the right way for us to think about all of that power and all of that potential, all of that capability and capacity that we have as human beings? Why do we have that power? And how do we faithfully exercise that power? The scriptures recognize this amazing capacity and ability that every one of us has as human beings. And the scriptures trace that back to the God who created us as his image bearers. When God first created humanity, the creation account says that God called humanity, the crown of his creation, to rule over the earth. Genesis 1, 27, God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female. He created them. And God blessed them, and he said to them, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it, rule over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, and over every living creature that moves on the ground. That word, rule, in Genesis chapter 1, is meant to capture this God-given capacity that we all have to influence our world and the various arenas in that world that we occupy. When we rule, we are exercising dominion, power, and influence over a domain, a sphere, a realm. So think of the various domains, the various rooms, in a sense, in which we exercise dominion. Here are just a few of many examples. Which are the rooms, which are the domains in which you exercise your rule? Now, for some people, what's on this screen is the basic frame of reference that they carry with them through life. There's me, and then there are the various domains in which I live and move and have my being, and that's it. You could call this the graduation speech version of reality. It has no reference point outside of us. You have limitless potential. You can be whatever you want to be. The sky is the limit. Follow your dreams. Go for it. But is that the most faithful way for us to understand my life and my capacities? What is the right way for us to think about the God-given power and potential that we have as human beings in each of these various arenas of our lives? More to the point, is there some point of reference outside of myself, something that is deeper or truer than me and then these realms 
that should inform the way that I live within these domains as I exercise my dominion. You know well that modern science is absolutely obsessed with discovering the unseen reality that lies behind the world that we see and experience. Think of the Herculean efforts made to understand ultimate reality, like the Hadron Collider in CERN, five miles in diameter buried under the city of Geneva, or the Webb Space Telescope in orbit almost a million miles from the Earth, both designed to help us see into the deepest unseen reality of things. But the Bible points us in a different direction in order to understand the unseen realities that lie at the heart of existence. Throughout the scriptures, really from the front cover to the back, we encounter glimpses of the truest reality of all. Unfolding glimpses and hints and foretastes, all seeking to capture something beyond our seeing and beyond even our imagining. And it's important that we're clear. These are not just glimpses of something that comes later. Earth now, then heaven when we die. And these are not just glimpses of some spiritual realm that is separate from our physical world. These are glimpses of eternal reality. Truer than and deeper than and behind and over and defining of all of the rest of reality. Listen to some of these glimpses that come through in the scriptures. Exodus 24 that will be familiar to us from our summer series. Moses, Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, and the 70 elders of Israel went up and they saw the God of Israel. And under his feet was something like pavement made of lapis lazuli as bright blue as the sky. Psalm 99, the Lord reigns. He sits enthroned between the cherubim. Let the earth shake. The king is mighty. Exalt the Lord our God and worship at his footstool. He is holy. Isaiah 6, in the, years, the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and exalted, seated on the throne in the train of his robe, filled the temple. Above him were seraphim. Each with six wings, with two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying. And they were calling to one another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. And at the sound of their voices, the doorposts and the thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. Ezekiel chapter 1, spread out above the heads of the living creatures, was what looked like a vault, sparkling like crystal and awesome. And above the vault, over their heads, was what looked like a throne of lapis lazuli. And high above on the throne was a figure like that of a man. From what appeared to be his waist up, he looked like glowing metal, as if full of fire. And from there down, he looked like fire and brilliant light surrounded him. Like the appearance of a rainbow in the clouds on a rainy day, so was the radiance around him. This was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. Daniel chapter 7. As I looked, thrones were set in place, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. 
His clothing was as white as snow. His hair was white like wool. His throne was flaming with fire. A river of fire was flowing, coming out from before him. And thousands upon thousands were attending him. 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. And then finally, the passage we're looking at today from the book of Revelation. For many of us, the book of Revelation is a baffling mystery, but it really doesn't need to be. It's just a wide-angle view of human history that uses symbolism to convey truth. When we approach the book, we often try to figure out what it means in terms of time. What happens when? But I think it's really much more helpful to think of it through the lens of place. What happens where? The book of Revelation is a two-views way of seeing the world. It captures in the beginning and in the end, in chapters 1 through 3 and in 22, what we see with our eyes in the realm of life and death, in our physical, this world experience, where it isn't always obvious that there is order or purpose to the lives that we're living. But then in the middle chapter, starting at the beginning of chapter 4 and going through chapter 21, it takes us further in and it lets us see through to the deeper reality of existence to see things as they really are all the time. Here's how chapter four begins. After this, I looked, and there before me was a door standing open in heaven. And the voice I had first heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, come up here, and I'll show you what must take place after this. And at once, I was in the spirit, and there before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. What unseen reality lies at the heart of the universe? Not quarks and bosons, not black holes and dark matter, but a throne room. This is the defining center of reality. Verse two, there before me was a throne in heaven, with someone sitting on it. In case we have any question about what the focus of this passage is, a quick count reveals that God's throne is mentioned 10 times in these 11 verses. The most important place in existence is not any of these small rooms that you and I busy ourselves in as human beings, but the heavenly throne room. And the most important person in existence is not me or any of us or all of us together, but God who is on the throne. All other reality is defined by this reality and all other rule by his rule. The only way that I can properly understand my gifts, my capacities, my life is if I see myself and my dom dominion and the various domains in which I exercise my dominion or my rule if I see all of that beneath the one who sits on the throne and what a one he is. Verse three, and the one who sat there had the appearance of jasper and ruby and a rainbow that shone like an emerald and circled the throne. As we saw in our series on God's encounter with his people at Mount Sinai, biblical writers who have visions of ultimate spiritual realities always grope to find some earthly point of reference to give at least a hint of the wonders that they have seen. Verse four, surrounding the throne 
were 24 other thrones, and seated on them were 24 elders. And they were dressed in white and had crowns of gold on their heads. As you probably know, numbers in the book of Revelation almost always have spiritual or symbolic meaning. Clearly, the 24 elders are representatives are representative of all of God's redeemed people. 12 representing the tribes of Israel, plus 12 representing the disciples of Christ. All of them together in a sort of federal way, representing the entire new humanity, God's redeemed people. This is us, the redeemed people of God, gathered around the throne. The thrones that they sit on and the crowns that they wear are symbols of humanity's rule over creation that is described for us in Genesis chapter 1. Verse 5. From the throne came flashes of lightning, rumblings, and peals of thunder. In front of the throne, seven lamps were blazing. These are the seven spirits of God. Also in front of the throne, there was what looked like a sea of glass, clear as crystal. Lightning and thunder hearken back to Mount Sinai and that first glimpse we were given of the heavenly throne room. The seven lamps are a symbol for the one Holy Spirit of God. Seven is the divine number coming from the seven days of creation. So God the Father, the first person of the Trinity, is seated on the throne. The Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, is present before the throne. And in chapter 5, as we just heard read right before the message, the second person of the Trinity, Jesus, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, enters the throne room and takes his place in the middle of the throne. Check out verses 6 through 12 in chapter 5 when you have a moment. Now the sea of glass is one of the most fascinating symbols in the whole book. Many scholars trace this back to the wash basin in front of the tabernacle and the temple that was also called the sea. But I think it should be connected back to the creation story in Genesis 1. In the ancient world, water was called the abyss. Bodies of water were feared. They were understood as the realm of chaos and of evil and of death. In the starting moments of, of creation, in Genesis chapter 1, verse 2, God drives back the chaotic waters and he plants his new creation, the expression of his order and his rule right in the middle of those waters. And then throughout redemptive history, God is always displaying his power over the abyss, parting it and leading his people through it in the Old Testament and walking right across the top of it in the New Testament. I believe that the sea represents the forces of chaos and evil and death in creation. And the fact that the sea is before the throne shows that God's rule extends even over all that is turned against him. In Revelation chapter 20, we're told that at the end of human history, all evil and all who have given themselves over to evil will be thrown into the sea. And then at the start of the new creation in Revelation 21, we are told that there is no more sea one of the most powerful and hopeful lines in all of scripture. Verse six, in the center around the throne were four living creatures and they were covered with eyes in front and in back. 
The first living creature was like a lion. The second was like an ox. The third had a face like a man. The fourth was like a flying eagle. And each of the four living creatures had six wings and was covered with eyes all around, even under its wings. In many of the Old Testament visions of the throne room, we are given figurative descriptions of angelic beings who surround God's throne and who serve him night and day. They're called cherubim in the Psalms and seraphim in Isaiah. The number four is associated with the four corners of the world or the four winds. It's meant to convey the entirety of creation. So these four, with, covered with eyes, all seeing, seeing what is real, the veil pulled back. These four, with their different features, each like an earthly creature that's known for its strength and power, these four are meant to represent together every single angelic being who honors and serves God throughout existence, throughout time. Verse 8, day and night, they never stop saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Now remember that holy doesn't just mean morally perfect, though it certainly includes that. It means set apart from and set above everything else. What is holy occupies a separate realm from the rest of existence. It is distinctive and separate and transcendent, unlike anything else that exists. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The same phrase that the angels call out in the heavenly vision in Isaiah chapter 6. Who was and is and is to come. Not just expressing the idea that God is eternal, that he has always existed, but that he is always present. This is another way of saying this is the great I am. Verse 9. Whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne and who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and they worship him who lives forever and ever. Because the angelic beings never stop worshiping God night and day, that means the echoing worship of God's people is constant and unceasing. And they aren't just standing and singing along with a chorus or sitting and enjoying an anthem. It says they fall down before him and worship him. It's not a coincidence that this pair of words is by far the most common expression for worship in scripture. It means flattening yourself in front of a king, getting down on your hands and your knees with your forehead to the ground as an expression of worship, you are rightly above me in a position of glory and majesty. And as an expression of submission, I rightly place myself beneath you in a posture of humility and self-diminishment. And as an expression of service, every part of my life is relinquished and available to you. Without ceasing, the people of God submit to the king on the throne their lives yielded up, turned over to him. Have you, actually, have you ever actually gotten down on your hands and knees with your forehead to the ground before God? If you have never done that, and even if you have, I want to encourage you before the day ends today to try that. It is powerful. This is one of those passages that really challenges the world's way 
of thinking about what happens when we die. I have heard so many people say something like, gosh, we sure will miss Sam, but we know he's in a better place and someday we'll be with him again. As though heaven were a park with a bunch of people sitting around on folding chairs waiting patiently for their loved ones to arrive. Smith family reunion here, Jones family reunion over here, and God not really anywhere in the picture. No, this is what heaven is like. The essence of heaven is a throne room where God is seated on the throne and all of creation ceaselessly bows before him. And this isn't just the essence of heaven. This is the essence of reality. This is the heart of existence. This is the truest of all things. God is on the throne. And that's why we use a crown as our logo as a church. Everything else about our church spills out from this one reality that God is on the throne. Verse 10. They lay their crowns before the throne and say, you are worthy, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things and by your will, they were created and have their being. Laying your crown before a king was a familiar symbolic gesture in the ancient world. As one of many examples, Tiridates, the prince of Parthia, bowed down and laid his crown at the foot of Nero in 63 AD, symbolizing his relinquishing his rule, relinquishing his throne, and submitting to the emperor's rule. The redeemed people of God don't just lay their crowns down at the foot of the throne. The text says they cast them, they throw them there. They cannot put their crowns at God's feet fast enough. Why? Because they have seen God clearly. And in seeing God clearly, they see clearly what God deserves from us. This isn't just a philosophical statement. God is worthy of humanity's worship. It is an expression of personal devotion and allegiance. God, you are worthy of my worship. So around the throne, the ones who are just a little lower than the heavenly beings, who themselves have been crowned with glory and honor and who are called to rule over creation, they get down on their faces and they say to the one who is seated on the throne, you are worthy to receive glory. God's glory is his reputation. According to Augustine, our lives boil down to the way that we answer a single question. Who gets the glory? In his book, The City of God, Augustine writes, there can only be two basic loves. There is a love of God that leads to a forgetfulness of self and a love of self that leads to a forgetfulness of God. The former glories in itself, the latter glories in the Lord. You are worthy to receive honor. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 9. For the sake of God's honor, we aspire to please him. Honoring God is prizing him, cherishing him, treasuring him, seeing him as the greatest thing that we have and living in a way that reflects that and helps others to prize him as well. And you are worthy to receive power. The word for power in Greek is directly related to the word for rule. It's in just the same way that dynamite and dynasty are related. God has called us as human beings 
to rule, to exercise our power and initiative and creativity and influence in the various domains in which we live and move. But when we see through to the deepest realities of this world, when we glimpse God on his throne, we realize that the only right way for us to exercise our rule is on our knees. Relinquished before God, our lives yielded up, seeking to bring him glory and honor through the way that we exercise our dominion in the various domains in which we live. God calls us to rule even as he rules over us. Each of those rooms in which we live out our calling to rule, the classroom, the locker room, the workroom, the dining room, and so on, each of those presents us with a choice. Is this an arena that will be about me? about my glory and honor, about my rule, or will it be about the glory and the honor of the one who rules over me? The scriptures tell us the story of the choice that Herod Agrippa made in Acts chapter 12. An envoy from the neighboring regions of Tyre and Sidon came to seek an audience with Herod. Acts chapter 12, verse 19, on the appointed day, Herod, wearing his royal robes, sat on his throne and he delivered a public address to the people. It obviously was overwhelming to them because they shouted, this is the voice of a God and not of a man. But we're told God did not give praise to God or Herod did not give praise to God. He carried out his rule in a way that denied ultimate reality. He ruled over his domains in a way that denied God's rule over him. What about you? As you think about your influence in your home, your work, your school, does your dominion within those various domains reflect the ultimate reality that God is on the throne? Every Sunday morning when we gather for worship, we reenact Revelation chapter 4. Worship together in person is so important because we realign our lives to what is truest of all. Responding to God's invitation to come up here. And let me just invite our worship team to come up here as we're at this point in our worship service. Responding to God's invitation to come up here, we recalibrate our lives to reality. Remembering that God is on the throne. Contrary to what seems to be the case out there where we live in the sea. Because we don't live in a monarchy with a king or a queen ruling over us, it might not occur to us that a church sanctuary is meant to echo the architecture of a throne room. When we enter into worship, we approach God as subjects approaching their king, coming together to honor God as the one seated on the throne in our midst, seeing him high and lifted up, seated on the throne, we are reminded again of what is true, that God is worthy of our worship. So we join together with all of God's 
heavenly servants throughout all of creation and all of time in bringing him the glory and the honor and the thanksgiving that are his due. And as the ultimate expression of our worship, we bring him not just glory and honor and gratitude, we bring him ourselves. We slip down off our throne once again, flattening ourselves before him, laying our lives before him in a fresh act of relinquishment and submission, throwing our crown at his feet once again, bringing to him all that we are and all that we have, bringing it all back under his rule and reign. God is on the throne in our midst this morning. Would you join me in worshiping him now? And as we do, you are welcome as the Spirit prompts you to stand, to remain seated, to raise your hands, to open your hands, to kneel, to get on your face before God on the ground. Would you pray with me? 